Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Clara and Carolina, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on the blob and different types of intelligence. Super exciting. Yes, so I'll be talking about this weird creature and how it, without a nervous system, can appear to have a form of intelligence. So what is the blob? The blob is a slime mold. So this is not an animal, not a plant, not a fungus. Its Latin name is Physarum polycephalum. And it is a single-celled organism that's similar to an amoeba, but it contains thousands of different nuclei, so it can be really large even though it's technically one cell. There are also over 900 different species of slime mold. The most common one that you may have seen is kind of a bright yellowish one that looks like a fern or a coral shape, and they can be found in forests in kind of moist and dark environments. So to the untrained eye, no one would suspect that the blob would have any type of intelligence. Yes, exactly. Also, not that many people notice it, even though mm. apparently they're everywhere. So what kind of intelligence does the Fissarum polycephalum, or the blob, have? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they exhibit a form of movement by these creeping arm-like limbs called pseudopods and they are known to explore their environments using this movement and exhibit what is known as pathfinding behavior. So they essentially appear to sense their environments, but without the sensory apparatus that we are used to, like eyes or ears. And they search, they search space, but they then retract and then find the shortest path to fulfill whatever functions they need to, like the main one I can think of is finding food. And so these slime molds have been found to be able to solve complex problems. And a good example of this is a classic root optimization problem, also known as the traveling salesman problem, which asks a computer or a being <laughs> to look at a list of cities and figure out the shortest route between them. That also visits every city only once. And when you take an example of having four cities, there are only three possible routes to choose between, but then if you increase the number of cities to eight, then there are 2,520 routes. So a group of researchers in Keio University in Japan tested the ability for slime molds to solve this problem, and they found that when they increased the number of cities from four to eight, the slime molds only increase the amount of time taken by a linear amount, which is a lot less than expected, and they were also able to find an equally optimal route in both cases, despite this expansion of the search space. So they suggested that based on this, Slime Mold's ability to test new solutions and respond to feedback really quickly may help us to develop faster computers. By understanding how they do it, we can maybe use it and implement it in a computer system. That's so interesting. I, I saw something very similar, which was an experiment done by Nakagaki, where they used amoeba to solve mazes, and they used the Tokyo subway system in that they would put bits of food in different entrances of the map of the tube, mm -hmm. and then the um, slime mold would be able to map out the fastest way by simply first initially exploring all of the area, and then the areas that kind of had dead ends or weren't the most optimal path 
to get the food would kind of die off and then the final result ended up just being these salient structures of the amoeba find, being able to map out the tube which is super cool and yeah they found that they actually mimicked what was the existing Tokyo yeah. railway system which is well a good confirmation that humans did an efficient thing in creating <laughs> that rail system yeah and it's a parallel between I guess our intelligence and their strategy yeah yeah but what's interesting i was watching a video by wired about this and the researcher was saying that she appreciates the comparison between the types of intelligence but we also need to appreciate the differences in that the way they solve problems are very different because we would usually mm -hmm. think that coming up with all the possible solutions like slime molds do in terms of their exploration of the full space mm -hmm. and then retracting and only back to the optimal route. It doesn't seem like the most efficient way because mm -hmm. it's more like a trial and error sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, maybe because of the resources that slime molds have, maybe it's not too energy draining for them to do that. So it is the most efficient for how they work or mm -hmm. I don't know the reasons why, but we do have to appreciate that it is like a different methodology. Yeah that we could potentially use, but to us with our own intelligence is not intuitively the best. Yeah. Yeah. Another really big idea that has been studied in terms of slime mold intelligence is habituation. Yeah. And this is something that is very much studied in neuroscience and it's considered the simplest form of learning, which refers to how an organism responds when it encounters the same conditions or stimuli repeatedly, where it usually begins to diminish its responses to a repeated stimuli and filter out that stimulus, labeling it as essentially irrelevant. And in humans and other animals, this form of learning is mediated by changes in neural circuits. But a team in Toulouse in France led by Audrey Dussoutour has been studying this for quite a few years now and they have essentially shown that slime molds have the ability to habituate. So what they did is they put a plate of slime molds opposite a plate of food, so they feed them oatmeal, and then in between there is a gelatin bridge laced with either caffeine or quinine, which are both substances that slime molds don't like and they usually try to avoid, but they're harmless chemicals so they, they won't kill it, but they like to mm -hmm. go around it. And then they showed that in the first experiment, the slime molds took around 10 hours to cross this bridge to get to the food. Mm -hmm. They do eventually cross because they ultimately need food. But then after two days of continuously testing this, the slime molds began to ignore the substances and increase their speed. And after six days, they stopped responding to the, to the substances, which shows that they've essentially habituated mm -hmm. to it and learned that, that the food is more important, I mm -hmm. guess. And then, really interestingly though, they also showed that when they stopped giving them quinine or caffeine, they then became responsive to the bitter substances again, and again mm -hmm. had an aversive response to them, which is something that has been shown to be kind of a requirement for the definition of habituation, known mm -hmm. as spontaneous recovery. So it's not a permanent change in your response, it's a short-term learned response that can be unlearned. Yeah. And then in a following study, this is arguably more interesting, they put non-habituated slime molds mm -hmm. next to habituated slime molds 
and they showed that the non-habituated ones could learn and acquire the behavior from the habituated ones via cell fusion. Yeah. So they fused into one and they all showed the learned behavior. Yeah. So the way that they did it is you can actually like slice up the mold and it doesn't harm it whatsoever. So yeah, it's how you described it. They just took like these different pieces of the mold and put them together and then they fused mm -hmm. somehow. Then it ended up resulting in this organism that is no longer aversive to either caffeine or quinine. Yeah. And that also suggests that there are like some chemical mechanisms that must be underlying this response that can... Mm pass through the organism itself. Yeah, like signaling. Yeah, like some sort of signaling mechanism that can spread throughout the whole entire organism. Mm -hmm. They then did another kind of controversial experiment where they put, like, they claim they put slime molds to sleep mm -hmm. by basically drying them out in a controlled way. And then they sort of woke them up. But <laughs> when they woke them up a year later, they were in a salt-rich environment. And they found that all the non-habituated mm -hmm. slime blobs, yeah. they died when they were woken up, which they suggested was from an osmotic shock. Yeah. But the habituated ones survived and they started extending their pseudopods across the salty environments to hunt for food. Mm -hmm. And they suggested this is the blob exhibiting a form of long-term memory of ignoring uh, aversive stimuli to yeah. find food. I think that's really interesting, but I'm quite skeptical about it as well, in terms of whether it shows long-term learning. Yeah. If anything, like, how can we distinguish whether this is learning or evolution? Because, you know, slime molds perhaps have a much higher rate of, like, reproducibility than we do so perhaps they are evolving like in time and we're just watching them evolve and that's a really good point yeah and uh, John Smithies is also a bit skeptical of Dusatura's experiments and he was saying that learning implies behavior and dying is not that um, I so I read that quote and I was thinking about it but the habituated ones who mm. woke up and survived Surely that does show learning, because that's not dying. But is it learning or is it evolution? But it's within an organism that... It's within the same organism. Organism. Rather than one an, uh, offspring. That's true. That's a good point, yeah. But also, I don't know entirely how they reproduce. I know that another interesting fact about mm -hmm. the blob is that there's thought to be like over 700 different sexes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, I think like this is a... It's important to bear in mind that that's according to our human understanding of what sex yeah. is. Because in reality, the way they work is just so different. It's barely yeah. comparable. Yeah. Because they release spores that develop into sex cells. And then you need two sex cells containing different genetic variants to meet and, I guess, merge mm -hmm. to produce an offspring. Yeah. And the reason there's technically 720 sexes is that there are so many genetic variants Mm -hmm. that could be possibly be in the sex cells that all the combinations could yeah. make 720 variants so but is that like sex per se you know mm -hmm. it's just so different it, how comparable is it really yeah and i so a couple things about the Sotoro's experiments i think they're really interesting and i think it's really important to do this kind of research to look at intelligence 
types of intelligence and behavior and just understanding the fundamentals of how different organisms work. And in the article that I read, the Quantum Magazine article, they noted that she does struggle to find funding because a lot of people are skeptical and disbelieve whether this is actually representative of intelligence. Mm -hmm. But I find that such a narrow mind way to view science. And, you know, things like, for example, Chandra Dobson, you know, that was a passion project. That was just investigating algae. And now it's the one of the most used tools in neuroscience. And yeah. we do anthropomorphize things massively. So whether or not this is intelligence comparable to humans, like you were saying, whether, you know, it's efficient to the way that they explore things to compare it to how we would explore things, you know, I think it's quite limited. And it, it is important to understand the mechanisms of how things work in other species as well because you never know how it can be then applicable to us and just to understanding the world in general. Yeah, I definitely agree and even though it's also risky but there is value in trying to find similarities between intelligent systems that don't have a nervous system and that mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. to try to see if there's some more like basic principles yeah of how things work rather than just furthering our understanding of this one little nervous system you know you need to put it in context of the bigger picture of how systems work yeah exactly i completely agree with that yeah, yeah. and linked to that another paper by the same lab that was more recent published in 2021 they looked at the role of oscillatory activity mm. in this type of learning in slime molds, which was really fascinating to me because I find neural oscillations really intriguing. And that's also something that's like, whereas traditionally people have gone with more of a cellular perspective of how the brain works, mm. I think now it's beginning to also become clear that the system's level, including mechanisms like oscillations, may have its own level of significance. Mm -hmm. So they showed that the topology of slime molds comes from a network of interconnected vein-like tubes, which transports signaling molecules, and that the motility of the network is driven by distinct oscillations that occur in spatial temporal wave patterns, mm -hmm. which is somewhat comparable to how neural activities organize in oscillations at different frequencies. And they argue that the modulation of spontaneous oscillations may underlie learning in mm -hmm. slime molds. That's really interesting you say that because Chris Reed and his colleague Simon Garnier also suggested that for each tiny part of the slime mold contracts and expands over the course of one minute in terms of like their exploration, there's these pulses that happen and that the contraction rate is linked to the quality of the local environment and that attractive stimuli cause faster pulsations while negative stimuli cause the pulsations to slow. Um, and each pulsating part also influences the pulsating frequency of its neighbors because as we know these slimeology can span quite large areas and they compare it to the uh, firing rates of neurons and how they influence each other as well. Yes, yeah. so I find this really interesting in the general context of basically information theory, like how is yeah. information conveyed and carried through and stored mm -hmm. in systems. And we also discussed this in the episode on mycelium networks. Yes, because yes. The similarities with these fungal mycelium networks in forests that carry signals is that there are chemical messengers, like in the brain, um, calcium signaling as well. Calcium signaling, which I saw was also mentioned in the context of slime molds, except oh. it's not. It, it's a possibility that one of the messengers is mm -hmm. calcium, mm -hmm. but it's not been 100% defined mm -hmm. yet. 
but also this um, frequency coding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, related to that, Chong Chen was looking at colonies of bacteria and when they move around, they seem that they move in completely like random directions. But then when they did this time-lapse video, it ended up showing that they move around in these like elliptical shapes. And then Hugues Chate collaborated with him and they were looking at things like murmurations of starlings and things like that and basically about like the simple mathematical rules that govern the interactions between individual units and they related it to phase transitions which we also spoke about with Dominic in our episode on criticality and these mathematicians and physicists mainly were focused on phase transitions in, in non in biological substances and like water and things like that but we have to address that they do exist in biological substances but they find it more challenging due to the non-equilibrium aspect of it because oftentimes biological matter is not in equilibrium because mm -hmm. that's what it is required to have reactions occur like like in the mitochondria you need there to be a not an equilibrium in order to push the ions across and things like that yeah or even like how neurons fire you need uh -huh. a yeah an action potential is literally a mm -hmm. change in the equilibrium of the membrane yeah flow of ions happening at once yeah it will be interesting to know what the time span of that time lapse was or like what time frame they looked at when looking at the bacterial movement because I was just thinking of that in the context of like anthropomorphizing our sense of time in a way um, and assuming that different systems work at the same time frame as mm. we do. But yeah. in terms of scale, I guess it depends on the scale you're imaging it too. Mm -hmm. But bacteria, because they're so small, would take quite a while to yeah. see like visible movements yeah. in the bacteria. Exactly. Which is why like no one had observed it before and then when they did look at it in a, in a time-lapse scale, they did notice these patterns, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I also just wanted to mention one of my main takeaways from reflecting on this topic is actually the topic of our first episode, individuality. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking, even though we find these slime molds remarkable due to the fact that they're unicellular, that it's a single cell, but it's huge, and it can carry out all of these functions over such a spatial range. But does it mean that it's one entity? Like the fact that one single cell can have intelligence is quite a, mm -hmm. like an interesting concept. But does yeah. it, do, is it really one entity? Because it has multiple nuclei. Mm -hmm. And for example, in neurons, there is increasing evidence that different parts of the neuron can carry out semi-independent functions. Um, and this can add to the complexity of the system of a neuron. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was also, and then I was also reading another paper about collective intelligence, which I yeah. keep seeing on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> These different scales of intelligence are very intriguing to me. <laughs> and I think it's just especially interesting in the context of a slime mold, which is a single cell, but could it be viewed as actually more than a single cell? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... Are you potentially implying that they could have emergent properties? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking that exactly, mm. but yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, like the fact that it is physically large mm -hmm. and that there are clearly signaling molecules involved and that it has to sample quite a large space, I could imagine different 
parts of the slime mold are receiving very different signals mm. within an environment. Like yeah. if there's light on one side, yeah. um, but there's salt caffeine the <laughs> and salt in the other, um, then you know how does it convey that different types of information to itself as a whole? Like uh -huh. where does the information yeah. really go to? Does it go to a node nuclei like oh, nice. <laughs> or does yeah. it go to like its local nuclei yeah or how how does it integrate all of that information that's so interesting yeah that kind of reminds me of that question where we can only know so much and like we're limited with the hard problem of consciousness due to our biological nature and if we were like a simple organism we would only be able to know so much in that extent mm -hmm. um but perhaps in the case of this of the slime mold if it gets informed all at once about everything I don't know, maybe it's different? Does that make sense? <laughs> like, its consciousness would be really different for sure. Yeah. No, yes, but I think that, like, you know, we're not aware of our cells processing through our body. We're not aware of, like, every single oh, thing Oh, I see what you mean. Like, yeah. what is it actually aware of? Yeah, exactly. If there is so much going on... Yeah, and if there's not, like you said, a nucleus point, yeah. it's just constantly pulsating information in and out. Is it just constantly aware of everything? Yeah, which is also linked to habituation. Yeah. Because then, like, how would habituation be differentially needed, in mm -hmm. a way? Like, yeah. Like, maybe how it would it need to habituate less, because it still needs to remain... Yeah. Like, if there's light on one side, uh -huh. it shouldn't fully habituate to light. No, yeah, because if you then habituate to everything, to... then you can't process the constant information that you are receiving because it's constantly yeah. having, receiving information. Yeah. Yeah. When reading about uh, whether slime molds have a type of intelligence, I think, uh, so there's a debate which ends up being more of a language debate and not so much about science and that psychologists oh, and, yeah. and neuroscientists are upset that we're using these psychological words to describe behavior and whether or not it is behavior. But I, I don't know, I see the both sides. One is that we don't need to anthropomorphize everything. But then at the same time, why not call it a behavior if that's what it is? Because in a way, like claiming intelligence as a psychological concept that is only applicable to humans and animals is like kind of anthropomorphizing the word intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather... Yeah. Or, but is it anthropomorphizing or is it like colonizing or claiming intelligence is exclusively a human thing? I think it is. <laughs> but, but I'm saying it shouldn't be. I agree. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> exactly. When you put it that way, yeah. I think it makes it more convincing that it shouldn't be. I think as long as we're aware of the differences, mm -hmm. The parallels can remain obvious and we can use the same terminology um, because, how, I mean, like, how do we even know that animals that are very different from humans, you know, learn in the same way or even animals with the same nervous system, the mechanisms can be so different mm -hmm. that where do we draw the line yeah. is what I'm saying. You and, know? and we do need some sort of unifying word to understand more or less what we are relating a specific behavior or mechanism to, you know? Yeah. Like if we call human intelligence intelligence and then um, mold intelligence a brand new word we won't know that we're trying to e equate a similar thing mold intelligence yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, so i think and then there was also another point made where some biologists ob object to the idea that cells can have goals and memories and so on but then at the same time you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning have developed so much that we call it learning and we call it, you know, catastrophic forgetting <laughs> and that kind of thing. And 
basically arguing well, computer science has taught us that information processing is substrate dependent and it's not about how you're made of, but about how you compute. So whether or not these slime molds can compute information, then why not call it learning? Yeah, I like that. Mm. Also, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently where we were talking about what defines memory and like the concept of some materials mm. having memory, like oh, nice. like non non conscious objects, like, <laughs> like mattresses. Uh, yeah, they, basically. <laughs> like basically. memory foam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, we were talking about more natural materials, but still. Uh huh. And, okay, after a long conversation and debate about this, we were like, okay, yes, technically it fulfills the requirement of our definition of memory, mm -hmm. which was something along the lines of, like, being able to retrieve mm -hmm. information. But then it was different to what we subjectively think of as memory because the difference between our subjective memory is that we can retrieve a memory without it happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So like a memory that we see in a different system, mm -hmm. like the... But you the, need a cue. Including in the blob, what we can refer to as memory, or what has been referred to as memory is when we observe the same behavior being repeated. Mm -hmm. But in humans, we know that a memory can occur without you repeating the behavior. Yeah. It may lead to the initiation of a behavior, mm -hmm. but you can recall that time that you went to your brother's birthday party without going to your brother's birthday party again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so that's, I think, something that's limited in studying memory in general. Like, me memory is quite a hard one because learning, you can, learning is based on the repeated behavior, yeah. even in humans. Yeah. But memory is not. Yeah, that's a really good point. So yeah, some psychological concepts are definitely more limited than others in terms of how we define or study them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On that complex note, <laughs> we'll end today's episode and I really hope you enjoyed it on this more niche topic. And do go blob foraging the next time you're in a forest in a moist environment and maybe you'll witness something spectacular. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to share it with your family and friends and follow us on our Twitter page and Instagram at neuroverse underscore pod. Thank you.